started this last week. It's a fairly small letter, uh, and yet there's so much in it, it seems like. First Peter was written <coughs> because there was a lot of uh, external uh, opposition and persecution that was taking place. And uh, Peter appealed to uh, those that were scattered abroad, if you remember, uh, who he wrote to. He, he appealed to them to remain steadfast on the basis of what Christ had done for them through their redemption, uh, the fact that He had saved them from their sins. And he uh, used this over and over in his first letter uh, to urge them and to exhort them uh, to remain steadfast through the persecution. Uh, the second letter that he has here that we have in our Bibles is uh, dealing primarily with not external persecution, but internal troubles by false teachers and uh, their... Uh, their alluring, uh, enticing uh, of the hearts of those that were in the church to draw away uh, from sound doctrine. And uh, he chooses a little different course, and rather than appealing to what Christ had done for them through salvation and redemption, he emphasizes throughout this letter the urgency of growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that now that they have been redeemed, that they needed to build on that foundation. Uh, they needed to be growing daily. And by the way, uh, if you take First and Second Peter as, as uh, a whole, you take both books together, I think you find a very clear pattern for the Christian life in those two books. Of course, all of the Bible is, uh, is profitable to us, and I'm not trying to, uh, to minimize any other portions of Scripture, but it just seems like the way that First and Second Peter are laid out uh, gives almost a blueprint, a map uh, for the Christian life from the from the time you get saved, um, being steadfast to the point of growing uh, and maturing as a Christian, and uh, a very tremendous uh, set of letters I think uh, mightily used to help Christians understand this. We spent a little bit of time last week talking about the uh, three divisions of the book. We got into the first one and partly into the second one. Um, we have. <coughs> Excuse me. We have three chapters, so it's easily divisible. Each chapter, <coughs> excuse me, is a section. The first one is dealing with the development or the cultivation of Christian character. Excuse me, and uh, the importance of this. And uh, we're living in a day where this this topic of Christian grace is being minimized in our churches. We don't put a lot of emphasis on growing spiritually. Um, in fact, we're going to look at some things here a little bit further today when we get into the third section. <clears throat> and we're going to be seeing that even in the first century, they were battling some of the same things that you and I are battling in the day that we live. Satan doesn't change his tactics a whole lot. If they're working, uh, why change them? And uh, he, he really hasn't changed a whole lot over the years. And the sad thing is, you would think after, after 2,000 years of Christians seeing his tactics, that we would learn from it and say, uh, we're, we're, we're still having the same battles, the same fights, and that we would be more diligent to be aware of them and to see them. But for some reason, we continue uh, to struggle and to be deceived sometimes even, and we've got to be careful of this. So in chapter number one, the, the kind of the, the, the main thrust, he kind of hits it right, right in, the, in between the eyes, he kind of hits the nail on the head, he gets right to the point that um, there is a danger of false doctrine and false teachers rising up from inside the church. 
And he emphasizes how, how dangerous this is, and he almost puts it to the point, and I guess you could even say he does kind of allude to the fact that this is a greater danger than the persecution from without. And the reason is because it's from the pews of their churches, it's from the internal part of the church, that there were people rising up from that group that were, the Bible, and Peter uses this phrase, that were teaching damnable heresies. <coughs> Meaning that these were heresies of such a sort that it would literally condemn a man's soul because of the error. By the way, I know we talk a lot and we teach a lot and we put a big emphasis on sound doctrine in our church because the, the truth of the matter is, folks, heaven and hell hangs in the balance. One of the great fears in preaching the Bible is being wrong on such a doctrine that it would send someone to hell because of it. It's of great concern. It ought to be of great concern to all of us, not just pastors that stand in pulpits. It ought to be something that we worry about, that we, that we I don't want to say worry about, but we're, we're concerned enough about it that we study and we try to find it. Because I would never want to get to heaven one day and realize that because I was not diligent enough and I did not study enough and because I did not put enough attention to a sound doctrine in God's Word that the teaching that I taught sent someone to hell. Oh, could you imagine the heartache of this? And these, these folks were rising up in the church and they were teaching damnable heresies that uh, Peter speaks about here. And... He tells them that there's a way to combat this. And that was the uh, development of their, uh, their Christian uh, walk, their Christian character, if you will. And he tells them that they need to add to their faith. And he gives them uh, eight different things. He's, of course, faith is the first one. But he says, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness charity. And uh, in verse number excuse me, 8 of chapter 1, he says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful, notice this, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we battle false doctrine and false teachers? We battle it by being solid on our doctrine, on the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in this thing of Knowing uh, the Bible, um, I, I, I hate to I hate to use an illustration like this, but I'm going to use it for a minute just to try to help draw a parallel here because I'm, I'm going to use when 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 people work in banks, or at least they did years ago. I don't know if they still do it today with all the new digital stuff that's going out. But there used to be a, a, a major problem with counterfeiting money. And I guess people still do that today. But one of the ways they would teach people that handled a lot of money to uh, to be able to tell a difference between a counterfeit bill and, and a genuine bill is they would give them the genuine bill all the time to feel and to touch so that when something came through that wasn't quite right, they, they could tell it right away. And I hate to use an illustration like that because money doesn't even compare in the importance of sound doctrine. And one way that Christians can know false doctrine is to be so uh, involved with sound doctrine and right doctrine of God's Word that when we hear it, we know it's false. To study the Bible enough that we know these things. 
and I want to encourage you, I don't want you to ever get weary, because we do put a lot of emphasis, we do teach a lot on the importance of learning sound doctrine. We try to teach sound doctrine here. And I know that's not sometimes the most exciting type of preaching that goes on. But we don't come here to be excited. We come here to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is important. Eternity makes uh, ways into balances. So we need to add to our faith these things, and he, he talks about this, that they will uh, make us where we will neither be barren nor unfruitful <coughs> in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9 he says, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and here it is, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. These are the folks that are susceptible to the false teachings. They don't know their doctrine. They swallow the false lies. They swallow the things that these false teachers... And so he tells them in verse number 12, he says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So he said, this isn't something you don't know. But Peter even is saying the same thing that I'm trying to say here. The importance of reminding you, reminding you, reminding you. Peter's time is at hand. He knows this. He tells them in a few verses that his time is at hand. He's getting ready to depart. And he's leaving them with this thing that I want to stir you up. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. The importance of sound doctrine. Growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting diligence to study. So this is the first section. The second section is the condemnation of false teachers. And that is in chapter number 2. All right, so let's take a few moments there. We didn't get too far uh, into this. I will say this. <coughs> at the end of chapter 1, Paul, or, uh, Peter talks about his eyewitness account, specifically of, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he uses that as an illustration. But then he tells them in verse number 19, he says, We have a more sure word of prophecy. There's something even more sure than my own eyewitness, my own hearing. He says, Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And he points them back to the source of this growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from God's Word. It is what God has given to us to help us learn, to know Him, to know doctrine. Uh, we do not get new doctrine by new revelation in the day that we live. We have a more sure word of prophecy, and this is what Peter points to. And uh, he says, this is what you've got to hold to uh, for your sound doctrine. Now, then he switches gears. He goes into this thing of these false teachers. Verse number 1 of chapter 2, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many, do you see that verse? Many shall follow their pernicious ways. Now, we've been talking last Wednesday, we started a study on our a Christian's response to false teachers and false doctrine. If you weren't here Wednesday night, I would encourage you to listen to it, and we're going to hopefully finish up this coming Wednesday night on that topic. But these false teachers, uh, are there, there's two types of them. Some that are ignorant followers of false teaching, and they just 
propagate it ignorantly. They don't, I don't believe they have a vindictive bone in their body about trying to deceive people, but they themselves have been deceived. And so whatever truth they teach is going to be corrupted. But there are those, the Bible teaches, who are the, the ones that are after gain. They're covetous, that are deceitful, that are intentional, that do intentionally teach false doctrine. And uh, he talks about this in verse number 2. Peter's talking about this in verse number 2. And he makes this statement, and I think it's a very sad statement, and many shall follow. Many. Not, not a lot, not most, or not, not uh, several, but many. Many shall follow their pernicious ways. This ought to serve as a warning to you and I that even sometimes the most well-intentioned Christian who says, I'm not going to get caught in false doctrine can still be deceived by it. And I'll tell you, the most shrewd false doctrine that usually grabs a hold of somebody who even is watchful and trying to stand up against it is the doctrine that the false teacher uses where they will take a portion of something that is actually true and then add some additional truth to it of their own. And I don't know how many times Christians will follow after that doctrine because they'll say, well, there was some truth there, but it wasn't all true. And these guys, they intentionally do it. They're evil. They're, they're wicked. They're trying to deceive. And notice the Bible says this, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. The importance of being on guard, folks. I don't know how much time God will give me on this earth. I don't know how much time God will allow me to pastor this church. I hope it's for a good long time yet. But if God took me tomorrow and you guys were here, I would want to make sure that you guys know that you need to make certain that we have sound doctrine in this church. That we come back to Scriptures. If you ever have to look for another pastor, that you'll look for a pastor that will get up here and say, look, I want to make sure that we're sound on this book. We want to make sure that we're right on this book. Because if we're not, many will follow their ways. Notice he says in verse number 2, he also he says, "...by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of." And here's their motivation, that through covetousness they with, they shall, shall they with feigned words make merchandise <coughs> of you. Sounds like writing a best-selling book and trying to make millions of dollars so they can live in their mansions and fly their jets. They're trying to make merchandise of you. I, I have some men in my life that I uh, respect. I, I oftentimes will counsel with sometimes when I need some input or some advice on some matters. Some of them that are in ministry and have been preachers or missionaries for years. Some of them have written books because God has uh, given them some, uh, some methodology and some things through His Word that they've compiled into a simple, easy-to-read book. And, and there are those that will get out here and they'll sell those and try to make money and make a living off of it. But I'm thankful there are some men I know that they write a book that is a help to someone and they'll pay out of their own pocket to have these books printed and then they give 99% of them away just because they think that this is truth that people need to get. These are messages that the Lord had put on their heart from His Word that are based in Scripture. But these folks that come out here and they, they sign these contracts with these publishers and they try to get merchandise and they try to make money off of it, I don't have a whole lot of respect for them. 
Notice the Bible says here that these folks are covetous. They want to make merchandise. The Bible says, "...with feigned words they will make merchandise of, of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not." Now, he speaks of this. He introduces the topic of false teachers. And then he's going to give three illustrations here of God's attitude towards them. He's going to start with the fallen angels. Look with me in verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now he's going to give the second one. This is the world that was before the flood. <coughs> and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And now he's going to give the third one, and that is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live, notice this word, ungodly. Does God overthrow every city that's ungodly? No. But He did Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't He? Why, why did He do that to Sodom and Gomorrah and yet America is still here? Well, He used Sodom and Gomorrah as an ensample to show us His, his view of this. Three different illustrations. The fallen angels who uh, rebelled against Him, denied Him, went against Him. We have the world that was before the flood that turned and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They rejected God. Sodom and Gomorrah who did that which was right in their own eyes. They were only uh, uh, evil continually in their imaginations and they did whatever they wanted to do and rejected God. And God said this, those that rejected, those that lived ungodly, Peter uses these three illustrations to say, God spared them not. It ought to serve as a warning to false teachers that God takes this matter very seriously. This is not just a token uh, thing where God says, uh, you know, I'm displeased with this. This is something God judges, and they will not escape the judgment. In fact, we're going to see that in just a moment. But can I tell you this? As much as we can sit here and say, False teachers better sit up and listen to this. It ought to serve as a warning to you and I that we be even that much more careful that we do not even inadvertently spread false doctrine. Because it is that important to God. It ought to serve as an encouragement an exhortation for us to dig deep into God's Word and base everything that we know, everything that we teach, everything that we share on the truth of Scripture and nothing else. I read other people. I listen sometimes to preaching. I love to hear preaching. But my authority is not what some other man has written or what He has preached. And neither should yours. It needs to be this book. He takes it seriously. Notice in verse 7 it says, And He delivered just Lot, even a just man here. Even he got some chastening from it, didn't He? He delivered just Lot, but 
Lot, notice this, was vexed, it says, vexed with the filthy conversation of the, rich, uh, the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. <coughs> the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. So God didn't spare the angels. He didn't spare the old world. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And He's not going to spare these false teachers. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 10. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness. We're going to see a description here of these false teachers and uh, what, what their end is going to be. Okay? There's going to be three things that we're going to find are going to be their end. Let's look first of all in verse number 12, and then we're going to come back up to verse number 10. Look, look at verse 12. So, these are natural brute beasts. We talked about this Wednesday night a little bit. The Bible says, But these natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So they're going to be taken and destroyed and they're going to perish of their own corruption. This is going to be their end. This is what God's judgment and pronouncing of judgment is on these false teachers. Then we also find in verse number 13 that it says, And, as if that's not enough, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings, while they feast on you. So they're going to receive the reward of the unrighteous. They're going to receive the reward of the unrighteous. So they're going to perish in their corruption. <coughs> they're going to be taken and destroyed. They're going to receive the reward of the unrighteous. And then down in verse number 17, we find another uh, uh, proclamation of them. It says, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom, notice this, the mist of darkness is reserved forever. These are the punishments that God has said these false teachers are going to be going through. Now, does that mean that every person that ever teaches a false doctrine is not saved? No. Because there are some that do it ignorantly. But the ones that do it covetously and maliciously and deceitfully, I don't believe that there's any other way to read this passage than to say that they are not and cannot uh, be teaching such things and still be saved. I'm not saying they've lost their salvation, but if the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of them, I cannot see how they can continue to teach such things and there not be the judgment and the chastening of God to bring them around. And I believe that, that what Peter is saying here, and I know I'm saying something that is very, very strong, that those that do it intentionally, deceitfully, covetously, and for great gain, that this is their end. This is the judgment that God has reserved for them. Now, does that mean that they cannot be saved? No. They still have a free will. But someone that is that bent on spreading and promoting false doctrine for the sake of that, uh, you, you have to ask yourself the question, do you think there will ever be a time where they will turn back to God? I'm not the judge of that. God is. But if they do not, this is their end. 
Then there are those that I believe that do it ignorantly. I don't know that this is the judgment that they will have. <coughs> we'll look a little bit more of that on Wednesday night if you'll come as we see the different ways that we as Christians should respond to false teachers and false doctrine. But let's look at the characteristics then of these descriptions of these false teachers. Uh, let's start in verse number 10. They chiefly, uh, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh. So the first thing is they walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. All right? So they're going to have a worldly lifestyle. Um, you, you start looking at these folks that go out throughout the week and they party it up and they cuss like everybody else and they um, many times are immoral like everybody else and they behave just like the world and uh, they live that way. Uh, this is a description of a false teacher. Notice also it says that they are presumptuous, verse number 10, are they self-willed that they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. They despise government. Now, I understand we all have moments of our government sometimes that we're not as happy with as others, but the Bible does tell us as Christians that as much as within us in, we're to live peaceably with all men, and that as long as it does not contradict Scripture, we are to submit to the governmental authority over us. False teacher's not going to do that. Notice what else it says here as we read on down. Whereas angels which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. And uh, he goes on down in verse number, let's see here, verse number 13. Uh, Yeah, verse number 13. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they count it pleasure to write in the daytime spots they are and blemishes. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast on you. They're self-willed. It's all about them. What they can gain from it. They're not. Uh, they're uh, natural brute beasts. The Bible says here um, in verse number twelve. They're made to be taken and destroyed. They speak evil of things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. They speak evil of these things that they don't even understand. So if somebody does come with sound doctrine, they're going to speak evil of it. Somebody that takes a stand on the Word of God, they're going to say, well, they're too legalistic. By the way, taking a firm stand on God's Word is not the definition of being legalistic. I know that there are people out there that tell us this. Legalism is when you say that you have to uh, do works in order to gain salvation. You have to follow the law in order to be saved. And Christians, uh, we do not believe that. We believe that you are saved by faith, by grace through faith, uh, and faith alone. It is not by works. But does that then mean that we do not live pleasing to God? Teaching standards is not legalistic, because we're not saying that you have to have those standards to be saved. We're saying you need to have those standards to please God. You need to have those standards to be a testimony for the message of God. And so teaching standards, teaching the truth of God's Word, what is right and what is wrong, is not legalistic. But they don't understand that, and they speak evil of it. That's a false teacher. Notice he goes on to say this in verse number uh, they, they find it ple- verse number 12, I think it is. They find pleasure, and they riot in the daytime, in verse number 13, spots and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast on you. Notice this one, having eyes full of adultery. 
Isn't that amazing? How many, how many of these fellas and folks that have uh, fallen into not only uh, what we consider to be adultery, as far as physical adultery, and mess around with uh, uh, outside of uh, marriage, but also spiritual adultery. How they've forsaken God. And that they cannot, notice this verse number 14, they cannot cease from sin. They don't have that ability. Beguiling, unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. They've forsaken the wrong way or the right way and gone astray. Verse number fifteen. Their wells without water. This is an interesting one on verse number seventeen. Their wells without water. They get up. They say flowery words. They make you sound. Like, they make it sound like they're teaching this great, great message. And when you leave, you're empty. You're still thirsty. You remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? He told her, he said, if you'd known who you were talking to, you'd ask me to give you water. And he made this statement that you'd never thirst again. Why? Because Jesus satisfies. His Word satisfies. But these false teachers, they get up, they teach a, a, a message and a doctrine, and you leave empty. You leave worse than you came in, or, or at the least the same as you came in. You didn't get help. Oh, you might feel good for a little bit. You might have had a little pep rally, but you can get that going to a, to a baseball game or a football game or a basketball game. Wells without water. Clouds that are carried with the tempest. These folks change their doctrine about every other day. depends on which way the wind blows. They speak, this is a big one here, verse 18. They speak great swelling words of vanity. Boy, they make it sound good, don't they? I, I've heard some of these guys, I would, some of these televangelists, I'd love to have their voice. You ever hear them? They sound good. Uh, I could name some of them. And uh, boy, the, the voice, these booming, loud voices are great. And then their flowery speech and their vocabulary. And boy, you sit there and you're like, wow, that is good preaching. And then you get done with the message and you think, but I don't know what he said. They have great swelling words, but they're full of vanity. They're just empty. There's no substance there. Why? Because they're teaching you their philosophy. They're teaching you their good, uh, feel good about yourself. They're a good life coach, let's put it that way. Uh, But they're not teaching you the truth of doctrine. It's empty. It's vain. The Bible says that they allure through the lust of the flesh. Verse 18, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from those, uh, from them who live in error. They promise liberty. Notice verse 19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For a, of whom a man is overcome, the same as he brought into bondage, in bondage. They talk about this, set free. We're going, to, we're going to set you free. You've got to just claim it, name it, get victory. And they're as much in bondage as the people they're talking to. And Peter pretty well hits the nail on the head. You read this list of what characterizes these false teachers, and it's not going to be too hard for you and I to find out who they are in this world. 
because it characterizes them. The last section is confidence in Christ's return. He spends the rest of chapter number 3 stirring up their minds. He said, listen, you need to develop your, your Christian walk, your Christian character. You need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to combat false doctrine. Beware of them. Be sure of God's Word and how foundational it is. Be careful of these false teachers. Here's how you find them. Here's what they look like. Here's what they do. And then he says, I want to stir up your minds. Again, he tells them this one more time in verse number three, uh, chapter 3, verse number 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. He reminds them one more time. I mean, he is driving the nail home, isn't he? He's certainly emphasizing the danger that there is. Because once again, these are those who are among them. And that's the phrase that he uses through this. Uh, For sake of time, let's go ahead and look at verse 17 and 18. Because these two verses pretty much sum up this final letter that Peter writes. He says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Notice he's not saying you're going to fall from grace. You're not falling from your salvation, but you're falling from your own steadfastness. How do we combat that? Verse number 18. But grow. So he says, I want you to beware. And I want you to grow. Grow in the grace, in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Great, great book. Probably one of the most needful books, so concisely written and so powerfully stated, that deals with issues that you and I are facing in this present world and the urgency there is to grow to be solid in our doctrine to know this book and to be steadfast alright let's uh, go ahead and be dismissed in prayer let's stand together and we'll start probably about uh, 11.05 or so it looks like Father we're so grateful once again for your word and how your Holy Spirit has so aptly inspired every single word for us and utilize these men who were so willing to be vessels and instruments to use to pen these words accurately for us that we might not just know the gist of what You want us to know, 